If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in most of the seats. And in those Bibles, most of them, you'll find Acts chapter 3 on around page 771. We're continuing on in the book of Acts this morning as we walk through the amazing story of what the risen Christ did through a very unlikely group of underqualified people. <laughs> After Jesus had ascended to heaven, um, where he was exalted by God as Lord of all, from, from there Christ poured out God's spirit on these unqualified followers, empowering them for the mission that God had called them to. And we've been seeing how they quickly grew to become a movement of over 3,000 people. And then at the end of Acts 2, which we looked at two weeks ago, actually, we saw how they enjoyed a dynamic life together as a community as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to sharing, partnership, fellowship, whatever word you want to use for that, and also for the breaking of bread together. And and Luke described them at the end of Acts 2, verses 43 to 45, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then Luke thinks, well, that's a general overview and picture of these people. But let me give one specific example of what this looks like. This happened many times, but here's one example for you. And so in this story, which we're looking at today, we see the apostles doing signs and wonders so that many are filled with awe. And we see them meeting in the temple courts, praising God and enjoying favor with the people, like Luke summarized for us at the end of chapter 2. So this specific story he tells us in in chapter 3 happens one day around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The apostles Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray and to worship. Now, what we have to realize, first off, is what an amazing, grand, awe-inspiring place the temple was. Historians tell us that it was one of the largest structures built in the first century B.C. There's a model of it. Just imagine the scale of this. The temple courts were composed of white limestone, and they covered an area the size of 27 football fields. 27 football fields. Just imagine that. All stone pavement surrounded by these huge stone walls and columns. I mean, where can you go today and be part of a complex that big? 27 football fields. During the Passover festival, there could be several hundred thousand people comfortably gathering in this area. The the foundation stones which supported this whole complex averaged 15 feet long, with the biggest being 40 feet long and 10 to 15 feet wide and high. Inside was the temple building itself, composed of white marble and gold, and it stood 15 stories high. The whole thing dazzling in the sun could be seen from miles and miles away. This is where Peter and John have come to pray and to worship. And Luke makes a point to tell us that the gate they come to 
is called the beautiful gate. So Peter's like, Where'd... you wouldn't guess this key biblical truth. Well, here it is, the beautiful gate. <laughs> now, all of the, the gates of the temple complex were gorgeous works of craftsmanship and art. Most of them were covered with hammered gold and silver. And they were huge. Many of them were 60 feet high. Gold and silver, hammered intricately. And we don't know which one was the beautiful gate. It could have been any of them. But you can just imagine that it was absolutely gorgeous. We do know that the greatest of the gates, the Nicanor Gate, stood at the top of 15 stone steps. And its double doors stood 75 feet tall and 60 feet wide. Just immense. And what we have to realize, this is the scene, this is the backdrop that that we should be picturing in our mind's eye as we pictured a crippled beggar being set down beside a gate, a gate called Beautiful, to beg from those coming to worship. Peter and John approach, and, and the beggar asks them for money. And what does Peter say? He says, silver and gold I don't have. Now, don't overlook that phrase or or the building against which it's happening, the backdrop against which it's happening. Peter's probably not lying here. He's probably not just saying, yeah, sorry, I've got no spare change to help you, man. I spent it on the subway on my way over here. You know, that's, that's not what he's saying. Let's take this at face value. Peter has no silver or gold. As he stands looking at this great, opulent, beautiful gate ahead of them. Think about it. Peter's from Galilee, where he was a fisherman. But he left his business three years earlier to follow Jesus. And now he's living in Jerusalem, staying as a guest in a large room, Luke has told us, with 120 other people. And they've been selling whatever possessions they had to help those who had need. Peter has no money, no job, no belongings to speak of. He's given up everything to follow Jesus. He's got nothing to give to this beggar. So what does he do? Well, what would you do when when someone who seems to be genuinely in need asks you for help? Do you walk right by? Do you ignore them? Do you toss them a few coins if you happen to have it in your pocket? Well, look what Peter and John do. They, they do what they learned from Jesus. First, they look at the man straight at him. Don't, don't miss that. Peter and John stop and they look at the lame man. Jesus would do this too. Very often in the Gospels, we'll read that Jesus would meet someone in need, someone who was crying out for help, and Jesus would stop and look at them. And then time and again, Jesus would feel compassion. Compassion starts with slowing down enough to notice that there's a real person there in front of you, a person with real need, a person in trouble. And that compassion Jesus would feel would time and again cause him to respond. And just just as here, we're going to see it causes Peter to respond. Interestingly, uh, what Peter does next is ask the beggar to look at him. And John, verse 4, he says, look at us. 
Peter's trying to connect with this crippled man to, to change this moment from a simple mindless exchange of a few coins in return for an eased conscience to a real connection. Look at us, Peter says. And the man looks. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. And then get this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then Peter grabs the crippled by the right hand and helps him to his feet. Can you believe it? Peter doesn't pray for the man. He doesn't ask Jesus to heal the man. No, Peter just commands, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And then instead of waiting to see if it works, Peter grabs the guy and helps him up. Talk about boldness. Talk about confidence. What if it doesn't work? What in the world does Peter know here that gives him the confidence to do this? How does Peter know that he can just tell this guy who's been crippled his whole life to get up and walk and the man will be able to do it? There's no evidence that God spoke to Peter in this instance and assured him that he could do it. Peter just does it. He just speaks the name of Jesus and helps the man up and the man can walk. And later he explains how he did it. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. Faith in the name of Jesus. We'll come back to that. But notice what happens next, verse 7. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles become strong. Luke's a doctor, so you get all these interesting medical details. And the man jumps up to his feet, and he begins to walk. He's been lame from birth. He has never walked, never as a child learned to walk. His brain doesn't have the neural connections, the programming for balance, the the vestibular input or the neural outputs necessary to put it all together with balance and coordination to walk. Yet in an instant, this man is up and walking. Ankles healed, feet healed, muscles strong, nerves connected, brain programmed, all by Jesus, and off he goes. Wow. Wow. He goes with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, this miracle and uh, Peter's message after it are a cascade of Old Testament scripture references and fulfilled prophecies, if you know your Old Testament. The one that comes to mind right here is Isaiah 35, 6. Your God will come. He will come to save you. And then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, now what makes all of this even more striking is where it's happening. It's happening in the temple. And do you realize that crippled people were not allowed in the temple? It had to do with the way the Jews interpreted verses like Leviticus 21.19, which says, No man with a crippled foot or hand may come near to God's altar. That's one reason this guy was left outside the gate to beg. All his life, this man had been told, 
you can't come in. You can't get close to God. You can't fully join in our celebration, in our community festivities, in our worship, because you're crippled. You're defective. Stay outside. That's where God wants you. But now, through the name of Jesus, in an instant, all of that has changed for this man. And this man is a new man. He's not lame anymore. He's whole. He can join God's people. He can draw near to God. And so he goes with Peter and John into God's presence. And he's leaping and he's walking and he's praising God. What a beautiful picture, right? That Luke paints for us here. The lame leaping like a deer, praising God in his house. This is good news. This is a picture of what salvation looks like. This is Jesus putting back together those who are broken, inviting them home to his house, and they are celebrating and they are praising God. This is prophecy being fulfilled. It's signs and wonders taking place as the prophets foretold. It's a picture of the gospel of what Jesus came to do. And how did it happen? Peter had faith in the name of Jesus. Again, we'll come back to that. Well, just like last week, this amazing display of God's power leads to a speech by Peter. The the crowd see this wonder. They are um, amazed. They come running to Peter and John and to this healed beggar who's holding on to them. And their interest has been piqued. Remember, this, this is witnessed by by deed and by word, it's both show and tell. First, Christ does an amazing sign, a, a wonder to, to show something about this salvation. And then Peter steps forward and tells what it means. Peter explains to those who, who witness it how they should think about it and, and what they should make of it. And Peter, once again, as we saw last Sunday, points the people to Jesus. He says, don't look at us. Verse 12, why do you stare at us as if by our our own power or our godliness we made this man walk? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. This is the basic posture that, that we have to have as followers of Jesus. The focus is on Jesus, not us. Not, not on us, not on our abilities or our successes. Not on our churches, not on our politics. On Jesus. Peter continues, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, glorified his servant, Jesus, lifted up Jesus. This is another fulfilled scripture. This one um, is from Isaiah. Peter sees how it points to Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13 says, see, my servant will be raised and lifted up. And highly exalted. Peter is just seeing everywhere how what is happening in his day is the fruition and the fulfillment of all that Scripture foretold. Remember, we saw this last Sunday with Pentecost, the prophecy in Joel was fulfilled, which talked about the last days beginning and the Holy Spirit being poured out. And now Peter says in verse 24, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these these days, these days. Peter realizes that all 
that God's word foretold is now coming to pass in his day. It's happening all around him. All the longed for days, all the dreamed about events of the future, they are finally happening. This is a time of glad tidings, a time of long-awaited fulfillments. And Peter is drawing these connections. He's thinking, remember the prophet said that? Well, and now this is happening. In other words, what's happening now through Jesus isn't some novel innovation. It's biblical. It's in continuity with what the, the sovereign God has been pointing toward and foretelling and now doing, leading up to, working toward all along. All of history, all that God did in the Old Testament through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, verse 13. And through Moses, verse 22. And through Samuel and all the other prophets, verse 24. Joel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, others. And through David, as we saw last Sunday. It's all been leading up toward and pointing to this moment. Toward Jesus. Jesus Christ is the culmination of the ages, the goal and the intention of all God's plans to inaugurate the coming of a new age, as we saw last Sunday, to bring about times of refreshing, as Peter puts it in verse 19, as as we saw last Sunday, as Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his followers, refreshing, enlivening, empowering them so that they begin to live and to experience the life of the new age that we read about at the end of Acts 2 and we're going to continue to read about. Acts is showing us all the signs, what what God is doing in and through Jesus, and how it's what Scripture has been pointing toward all along. God's King, God's Messiah has come and taken His throne. Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit. He's causing the lame to leap, praising God in the temple. Christ's followers are being given new hearts, transformed so that they share generously, so that they care for one another. And it's all because of Jesus. So question. How have the people of Jerusalem so far been responding to all this? Well, Peter calls them on how they've been responding. He says in verses 13 to 14, You handed Jesus over to be killed, and you disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. Can you believe it? God finally sends the one he's been speaking about and foretelling all these years. And what do God's people do? They disown him and they kill him. They fail to recognize him. They fail to receive him, to listen to him. More than that, they reject him and disown him and destroy him. They have their religion. They have their beautiful grand temple for God, which is has its gold and silver gates, its works of exquisite craftsmanship, but they are not listening to God. They're they're missing the bigger and better things as a result that, that God is now doing as the new age dawns. Unless we be too hard on them, let's own for ourselves how often we can be like this. How easily we get distracted seeking beautiful religion a nice building, comforting traditions, correct beliefs, fulfilling volunteer opportunities, insightful, inspiring messages, 
awesome music, warm community. But what if we miss, amidst all that, what God is actually trying to say to us? What if we shy away from the bigger and better things God wants to do? Because they're out of the ordinary, they'll, they'll shake things up. They're, they're too risky. They're outside of our comfort zone. You might remember back when, when Mel Gibson directed the movie, The Passion of the Christ. When it came time to, to shoot the scene of them crucifying Jesus, nailing him to the cross, Gibson framed the scene so that you, you just see the big hammer and, and the rugged spikes and, and the Roman soldier's arms and the cross, and Jesus' vulnerable flesh. And did you know in the shot, it was Gibson himself whose hands did the nailing. It was his hands in the shot who nailed Jesus there as the Roman soldier's hands, because Gibson understood that that's how it is for each of us. In one way or another, we too fail to listen to what God is trying to say to us. We get enamored, we get distracted by our quest for beautiful religion. And and we miss that in Jesus, God is doing something so much bigger and better. Well, Peter is here calling out his own contemporaries on it. You rejected and disowned the one God sent you. God sent you the author of life, but you had him put to death. But you couldn't stop God, Peter continues. No, God raised Jesus up again. God glorified Jesus, his servant. So God took care of Jesus, vindicating him. But but what about God's people who rejected God's son? What about those who disowned and murdered the one God sent to them? What is God going to do to them? Well, guess what? God does the most amazing thing. God offers them grace. God offers them forgiveness. This is God's nature. Don't ever think you've done something so bad that God can't or won't forgive you. God even offered to forgive the people who had his own son nailed to the cross. Verse 17, Peter says, Now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. In other words, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't realize it. Neither did your leaders. Some leaders, they had no clue what God was really up to. They had their amazing temple. They had their beautiful religion. The gates, I'm sure, were all nicely polished. But they weren't listening to to the God it was all supposed to be about. They didn't recognize what God was doing because it didn't look like they expected They expected it to be all grand and powerful and and beautiful, but instead it it looked like weakness and poverty, like crippled beggars and outcast tax collectors and poor carpenters and fishermen. So they missed it. They rejected it. And what was God's response? Grace, forgiveness, second chances. Verse 19, repent then, Peter says, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Sins wiped away. Times of refreshing. God offers grace not just to Jesus' followers, but to even to those who helped crucify Jesus. 
All they have to do, all we have to do is repent. Turn around, Peter says. Repent means to change your mind, to to look at things differently, to see them the way God sees them, to wake up to what God is actually doing, to start listening to what God is trying to show you and tell you, to stop rejecting, to stop ignoring Jesus whom God sent, and to stop holding him at arm's length. Turn around and embrace him. Receive your salvation. God will forgive you. He'll wipe away all your sins. He'll give you times of refreshing. That's Peter's message. How do we respond to it today? Well, let me ask you, what's your focus? Are you content with beautiful religion? Is is that what you're looking for? Or or maybe you're working hard for it to make the religion you've got more beautiful? Or are you hungry for and open to the bigger and better things God is doing? Have you followed the, the trail of Scripture, the prophecies which point toward, which prepare us for Christ's coming? Which raise our expectations of what these last days, this new age is supposed to be like? And then of the signs and the wonders that Jesus does that we read about in the Gospels. Are you taking note of those? And then as they continue through Jesus' people in the book of Acts, as they show us that in Jesus and through Jesus, this new age, this new life has indeed arrived. And as they demonstrate what that life is like. Are you seeing the signs? Are you putting together the pieces? This reminds me of that movie, Bruce Almighty, a while back. There was this scene where Bruce is in crisis. He's he's driving, speeding down the road at night in his sports car. He's crying out to God, God, give me a signal. And he passes one of those building construction signs, which says, caution ahead. And then he begs, God, give me a sign. And a construction truck pulls in front of him, full of road signs. Stop, dead end, wrong way. And he shouts, God, answer me. And his cell phone rings, but he doesn't answer it. He blows right past all of it. Is that what we're doing? Are we missing all the signs God has given us? For some of us, maybe like for Peter's first audience, the question for us is, what are we doing with Jesus? What are we doing with Jesus? Are we writing him off, rejecting him, going on with our lives without him? Or are we investigating and exploring, listening to what God might be saying to us and what God might be doing for us in and through Jesus? Are we open to how Jesus might want to press in and change our lives? For others of us, maybe we're already following Jesus. But does, does our life look anything like Jesus' life and the life of Jesus' followers? The pattern that's laid out for us in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Are we, on the one hand, devoted like they were back in the end of Acts 2? Are, are we sacrificially committed, even with our silver and gold? Are, are we running hard for God's purpose for us, for God's mission? 
On the other hand, are we experiencing the power of God's spirit, the times of refreshing, the life of the new age? Are we letting what we read in the New Testament challenge us and stretch us and our expectations? I don't know about you, but too often in my own life, my own experience falls short of what I read about in the New Testament. I read these, these amazing occurrences, uh, occurrences about these, these signs and these wonders, these fulfillments, and very often, too often, it's not my experience. I've had little tastes of it, but not often enough. And, and so it's up here. You know, this life I read about in the New Testament is up here, and my own life is, is down here. And, and so how do I close this gap, this discrepancy between the two? Well, I'm tempted to, to rationalize away what's up here. Well, you know, that was back in Bible times. Those were special days. You know, those were superheroes. Th- those days are over now. And if I dig around, I can even find ready-made theologies which match my experience down here and explain away the Bible. Well, you know, that was the apostolic age. God's not working that way anymore. And anyone who claims that God is, I mean, sure, those people are out there, but they're either deceived or they're lying or something like that. So it's tempting to just content myself with polishing the gates of God's house, with occupying myself with religion and trying to make it a little more beautiful. I could take that route, but there's another route I could take. I could say, If my life down here doesn't match up to what we read about in the New Testament, then maybe my life needs to change. Maybe my expectations need to grow. Maybe I'm not listening well enough to what God is saying to me. I mean, does it bother any of you that nobody in this church is walking up to crippled beggars and saying in the name of Jesus Christ, walk? It bothers me. Why why aren't we? What are we missing? Do we forget that we live in the new age? Do we not realize what Jesus came to set in motion? Or the power in his name? Or the authority he's given us to be his agents and witnesses of the bigger and better things God wants to do? Do we just conveniently forget what Jesus said when he said, anyone who believes in me will do greater works than I did? Are we content to just polish the gates and and let the lame beggars keep begging? Now, I don't want to reduce this just to whether people are getting healed or not. But if Jesus Christ is doing an amazing work in this world, as Peter claims, if, if Jesus is pouring out his powerful spirit, if he's bringing times of refreshing, verse 19, if he's restoring everything, verse 21, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed, verse 25, then what is Jesus calling us to do as his followers about that? Just polish the beautiful gates of our religion? Or is there more? Are there bigger and better things? And are we listening? Do we know our purpose? Do we know our mission? Do we know the authority that Jesus has given his followers to make that mission happen? Are we growing in that authority? Do we know the power in the name of Jesus to cause the mission of Jesus to happen through us and around us? 
Will we let God's word poke us and prod us and wake us up to the fact that God is doing bigger and better things? Let's pray about this. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Acts, which is almost radioactive with your power, um, which challenges us and which shakes us and which makes us wonder, why don't I see this in my own life? I pray that you would guide us as we all theologize about that and try to figure out what it means for us. I pray this morning that we would hear what your word is saying to us and we take time even now to listen this morning for what it is that you're saying to us. And I'll give us all a minute to do that. And God, as we listen, help us also to discern what we need to do about that what the next step is for us. Amen.